everybody. Welcome back to the Going for Two podcast, the official podcast of the Extra Points newsletter. I'm your intrepid host and publisher of Extra Points, Matt Brown, joined here as always by my co-host, Brian Fisher. Brian, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing fantastic. Excited, uh, you know, coming off that last episode, had some some great reception to that, and, and hopefully we can continue that. Going into the weeds with a, a interesting subject that I know is, is fascinating to us both. Yeah. The last couple of weeks, I think, have, have really helped build us some strong momentum. I'm excited about some of the guests that we have come Coming up in the next couple of weeks, but but today I, I thought it makes sense for maybe just you and I to chat about something because especially because I think you have a little bit more uh, defined expertise of, about how some of uh, some of this stuff works. I want to talk about some nitty gritty NCAA bylaw issues because there was there was a rule change or an announcement last week that made a whole lot of recruiting reporters and a whole lot of current recruits and a couple of other people really angry. Uh, and that was an announcement that uh, the, the at the Division One level, anyway, the NCAA is extending the recruiting dead period. Um, I, I believe until April, um, at, at, at least for the next several months. Why don't you help explain what what that actually means, and then we can talk about why people are so mad online about it. Yes, mad people online. You know, no no surprise there. But essentially, this was a decision by the Division One Council, which kind of runs the NCAA day to day, especially at the obviously Division One level. And and they said they they've extended this dead period through May thirty first. Now they will announce at some point kind of opening up recruiting by June 1st. And there will be an announcement on that by April 15th. So come tax day, uh, you know, around the country, we'll at least have some sort of idea how recruiting at the Division One level will start to open up over the summer. And so that that's good news for a lot of people, having that uh, runway at least to kind of build up to knowing what's what's going to happen after that. And and, and essentially, we have been stuck in this dead period for, um, you know, we're, we're coming up on on really the anniversary of all of sports shutting down in on March 11th. And we're kind of coming up on another anniversary in terms of uh, NCAA recruiting uh, being in essentially a dead period for almost a year. And we will surpass that mark eventually. And um, the dead period, everybody says, all right, well, there's no recruiting. Well, that that's not quite true. The dead period means essentially that you cannot have in-person contact with recruits. Um, you know, you can still call them. You can still have uh, emails. You can DM them over social media. You can Skype with them, Zoom with them, obviously. Obviously, that sort of stuff has been going on. They've loosened the restrictions around that. But the dead period still means no on or off campus recruiting. And that means no face to face contact with with recruits, with parents of recruits. And, and that's quite different from, you know, others. The D2 and D3 have, have been opened up uh, uh, somewhat liberally in, since uh, last fall. And so it's, it's just a, a unique set of circumstances that all D1 schools are having to deal with with this announcement. Yeah. So I'm glad that you you, you explain that because. Dead period does seem a little bit like a like a misnomer where you would expect no recruiting contact to happen. But anybody that follows college athletics and is on Twitter for more than 36 hours will probably see somebody retweeting a prospect getting an offer uh, you know, with, within that time window. So clearly somebody is still talking to the to the high schoolers. They just can't meet in person. So hypothetically, if I am a football player at Evanston Township High School and I decide to walk two miles or or whatever, you know, 
to go to Northwestern's campus because I want to go see their Taj Mahal football facility. Nobody can show that to me, right? Nobody from their recruiting staff, nobody from the university can go give me a tour. I can't go on campus. I can't talk to Pat Fitzgerald until this is is over, right? Correct. And and you go back to the fall, there was a lot of brouhaha a little bit about what happened in, in Oklahoma. And there were several Oklahoma prospects that essentially kind of banded together and, and went to the Oklahoma campus, but they went through the kind of the university department and they were still able to tour facilities uh, at the at school, but they couldn't have any contact with any of those OU coaches. And and a few others have done this around the country, but um, you know, it, essentially it is a hard wall between anybody connected with the athletic department and, and physical contact with uh, somebody in person uh, with a recruit. And so that has been the the unique difference, I think, with this dead period. And 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 there are, these dead periods happen all the time in the regular recruiting calendar. You know, certainly right. after the national title game, there's usually a, a dead period. There's usually a dead period bef- uh, during the coaches' convention, for example, and and at other times, you know, throughout the year to kind of give everybody a bit of a break. Uh, this has obviously been extended, and and there are quiet periods. There's um, you know where you can have a little bit more uh, contact than normal, and and I assume that's kind of what we're going to transition to in, in June before kind of f- fully opening up to true evaluation days, uh, which is what you typically hear that spring evaluation period, where mostly football coaches uh, obviously are going out on the road. They're seeing players uh, at, at their high schools. They're um, evaluating through spring practices. They're they're hosting recruits on uh, official and unofficial visits. But um, it, it, it is quite different uh, in terms of the setup nowadays as we kind of move forward into this transition to where hopefully we kind of get back more on a regular cadence this summer. Sure. I, 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 it would make sense that you would have um, multiple time, multiple periods throughout the calendar where you're going to have different rules. So this can be an extremely overwhelming process, even for a high schooler, um, and certainly for a, a college coach and for a lot of these college staffs that need time not just to go on vacation or to go on uh, to a convention, but even to prepare their universities and and to make sure that they can provide uh, some kind of legit, you know, coherent experience for people coming to campus. So it, it makes sense. You would have ebbs and flows, and it would make sense going back to to March. Or you would cancel this because we were in the, the the outbreak had just started. The last thing people wanted were to have a, a bunch of people traveling across the country, especially when you didn't really understand a whole lot about COVID. So looking back on this now, I am told we are still in this global pandemic. It has not, in fact, gone away. Um, am I correct in understanding that the principal reason for extending this dead period right now is still mostly the same reason why we added it in the beginning, which is to limit travel during a pandemic? Is that still the biggest reason why you're doing this here? I, I think that is the driving force. Certainly when, when you talk with a lot of these administrators, you know, I, they're subject to the same local regulations that uh, anybody is subject to. And so, you know, when you're talking about bringing kids, uh, it, it's one thing really to bring them from, you know, maybe down the street from a local level. But if you're talking about interstate travel, there's restrictions still across the country. You know, if, if my parents wanted to visit us, um, they're supposed to quarantine for 14 days here in Los Angeles County. And there's still restrictions surrounding that. And, and I think that is kind of the overriding driver in terms of why this was extended. There's still a lot of local regulations out there that affects kind of the competitive balance that, uh, yeah, schools may, maybe in Florida could have hosted um, some recruits. But if you're going to Stanford or San Jose State, that, that simply is not the case, um, especially from either out of region or out of state visitors. So I think that is kind of the, the driving force. And I think it's interesting because, uh, look, we, we do have the, the vaccine here. It's starting to roll out. And so I think there is a little bit of a light 
at the end of the tunnel in terms of maybe we, we can see down the road where where we can get recruits back on campus. But that time is not now. You know, we're, we're still kind of at that critical junction and, and we haven't gone past it to where uh, we can start opening up uh, really you know, travel. And I think that is the, the biggest driving force. I, I think there's also, you know, a, a monetary component to this as well. I, I mean, look, schools have saved a lot in terms of their recruiting budgets. These, you know, if you're talking about uh, the SEC schools, these Power Five schools, you know, you're talking about spending millions just on, on recruiting. And that's kind of been, been cut out of the budget because everything's gone virtual now. Uh, a lot of these schools still losing, you know, millions of dollars. Do you want to add six figures worth of spending to uh, pay for, you know, plane flights, hotels, and again, it's not just the, the one kid. It's their families that are coming with them a lot on these official visits as well. So uh, I think there is a bit of a budgetary impact. I think that's pushed aside compared to the local regulations, but it is still there. Uh, I don't think these schools want to spend the additional money. I want to talk about that here for a second, because th- this is from reading what a lot of other reporters and even what some of these athletes are saying is, is one of the bigger sticking points. I think if you were to say, listen, for the sake of enforcing some kind of competitive balance for recruiting, which is the one uh, a competitive balance issue that tends to make administrators freak out, even though you and me and God and Mark Emmert all know that it's never been competitively balanced, period, for, for recruiting. The idea that some people can come on campus and some states cannot uh, would, would cr- cause some football coaches to have an aneurysm, particularly given that, generally speaking, Southern states have been the more wide open as far as COVID is concerned. Those are your SEC and and ACC powers. And Midwestern and coastal states have generally been less so, your your Big Ten and your Pac-12. So I get that. But, and you alluded to this earlier, Division II and Division III schools are bringing people on campus. I I literally talked to an athletic director uh, at a a Division II school in the South that said, yeah, we've been having – hosting official visits for months. Now, we changed our regulations a little bit. We're only hosting kids on campus if they're coming more than five hours away, and they can only stay for a certain amount of time. And when you talk about the money, that's what seems a little bit counterintuitive, because if I am Valdosta, or if I'm West Florida, or if I'm, you know, Eastern New Mexico, I have way less resources to provide a more controlled COVID environment than Alabama would. You would almost think it would be less safe to let the division uh, two and three schools be able to bring kids on campus if safety is your biggest concern. And yet those are the ones that are doing it. So how am, how should I look at this then and not necessarily assume the most cynical of intentions? How does that how does that make sense? Well, I, I do think, you know, you talk with some athletic directors at, at the FBS level and they kind of have brought up the same point. You know, look, those D2 and D3 schools have been doing it. I think they can come up with a local plan, whether it's involving testing, quarantining at local hotels, that they could have guys on campus safely. And, and I think I just kind of go back a little bit to um, – a lot of leaders want this to be a little bit more of an even playing field, especially after so long being in this dead period to where, frankly, you know, everybody was on, on an even playing field. You know, you couldn't it, it kind of re- refocused everybody, especially locally uh, with with what the kind of athletes they could get. And and I think there is just a different pool, too. I, I think it's important to point that out, that you know, your D2 and D3 schools, while, while they might do some you know national recruiting, it's not like what Notre Dame is going to do. You know, it's not like what Ohio State is going to do or Clemson. Uh, you know, I mean, you just look at those recruiting classes right now and, and and where they get their kids. Yeah, a lot of it still is that 200 miles around campus, but a lot of the, especially the football and basketball programs, they're they're crisscrossing the country. And you also got to keep in mind too, this is a busy time on campus that 
It, 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 frankly, it's, it's as busy as it's ever been in terms of the number of sports that are playing right now. Uh, spring practice is, is right around the, the, the corner for a lot of those FBS schools that played in the fall. Uh, obviously, we're, we're seeing spring football at the FCS level. Um, a lot of sports are in action right now. Uh, we see the NCAA tournament is, is right around the corner. That is a huge money winner for these schools in terms of the distributions to get from the NCAA. And I, I think there's just a lot going on right now that uh, they, they kind of want to take a step back and say, if, if we just get a little bit Bit more time to where he can really firmly grasp what what it means to get get recruits back on campus. Then we can have a plan and, and kind of go from there. But they still got they still want to get these games in. They they still want to get the volleyball competitions in, the gymnastics competition. They still want to get them in. And if you're if there's any crossover between the virus coming on campus and and affecting that team, I, I think there is some some concern over that happening. And e- even as minor as it might sound, I, I think that's still kind of on, on the back of everybody's mind. You know, this is a really important point, especially. Especially, I think when we consider the membership of what the, the current Division One football oversight committee looks like, that on the institutional level, there's a huge demand and incentive to have a football season because that, for most institutions, is an enormous part of your athletic budget. But when you look at the NCAA entirely, there is an even bigger incentive to make sure this NCAA tournament happens because if we missed out on that two years in a row, that becomes an existential threat. To some, and I, I'm not exaggerating that, I think, to some uh, current institutions within this league, if not the NCAA itself, like come hell or high water or four horsemen or whatever, there's got to be an NCAA tournament. And we could talk about whether that means that the basketball players should be essential employees or, 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 you know, whether that changes athlete leverage for that's, that's a different conversation, an important one, but there, there is a, there's a, a, a rush to make sure that this tournament is able to go off um, in a way that maybe even is different from the rush to make sure a football season happened. And there it was very clear that schools were willing to entertain a significant amount of risk or at least some significant unknowns to make sure that that happens. So there, you're right. Any, any potential variable that might make that harder or could interrupt that potential po- uh, NCAA tournament is something you want to control. I want I want to quickly highlight in case there was there's been some confusion. As, as I understand it here, you've got the Division One Football Oversight Committee, and these individuals would make policy recommendations vis-a-vis recruiting timelines or anything else, and then pass that to the the rest of the NCAA, and there would be some kind of vote. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, I mean, these committees, and, and there's basically one for every sport, kind of discusses what's kind of going on, and, and it was the football oversight. I don't know if they were the first ones, but uh, they were kind of the main driver in terms of pushing things back to to the 31st. And, um, you know, all the other committees discussed that proposal, whether they wanted that date, whether they wanted a different one. But, um, you know, pretty much everyone, at least as a committee, now there might have been dissenting vote uh, voices, and, and there surely were in, in some of those committees in terms of that overall decision. But in terms of that recommendation that they passed along to the Division One Council, which was the one that really discussed it and voted on it, um, everybody was kind of agreed that uh, amongst all the sports, you know, that that May thirty first deadline um, was essentially what what we, what they wanted to push it to, and, yeah. and we'll work on progress from from the next couple of weeks in terms of where we go from there, June first. I, I saw a little bit of a narrative on Twitter that. The reason this vote happened the way that it was was because smaller schools that were terrified of spending really wanted to save money, scuttled the vote for for bigger programs that that wanted to spend things uh, more seriously. And and that is not what I have heard from some of the ADs that I've spoken to. And even if that's the case, I I think it's important. Let's just, you know, 
remind ourselves who's on the football oversight committee. Well, that's the, includes the AD for Alabama, includes the AD for Penn State, and includes the AD for Utah. Uh, Shane Lyons, I think, is is the chair of that entire committee. West Virginia. These are all schools that um, you know, both recruit at very high levels, if not the highest, Alabama, uh, but but are certainly spending and are comfortable spending large amounts of money. And if I, if unless my math is off, which it might be because my brain has been turned into chocolate pudding over the last couple of weeks, like the, the power institutions, when you factor in the student representatives here, have a majority vote on, on that council. So if this was voted down or, or the recommendation was scuttled here because of wanting to save money, well, it wasn't because the Ohio Valley did it. Either the big schools did a terrible job of whipping votes or there, there wasn't unan- yeah, it was it wasn't a unanimous consideration among the biggest brand schools. I, I, from, from my vantage and kind of from my conversations you know, over the last week, I think it would be inaccurate to say like this is because of some cheap FCS schools or it's because of the Ivy League or something that, that wanted to keep this down. And Alabama got got was 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 handcuffed. I don't think right now that's the case. Is that would you agree? Yeah, I actually think that this this was really you know a decision achieved by consensus and everybody trying to work towards being on the same page. Which in college athletics, given as competitive as it is, is not always the case. But I seldom think everybody understands. Yeah, seldom. And, and I think everybody understands that the, you know we we want to approach this collectively because it is a decision that affects every single school, uh, not only at the FBS level, but in, in division one. And so, um, you know, there, there are a lot of factors at play. I, I've also heard, you know, in, in talking with folks that they say, look, you know, there's also NIL and there's one-time transfer and g- having our coaches to get a sense of what their roster is going to look like um, in, in terms of that one-time transfer rule, how many scholarships they might have, you know, what kind of offers they can, they can hand out. That's a factor in this, um, especially in terms of knowing when that start date is, is actually going to be. Yeah. Everybody assumes it's going to be voted on in April. That's not still official yet. Um, we, we assume that everything's going to go into place and there will be waivers come August 1st and all that. We don't a hundred percent know that sure, for sure just yet. Um, and, and then I think there's there's the NIL issue as well. Uh, now, a school is not able to, even if the legislation were to pass, say, hey, you know, come to our school, you can, ha- here's a car dealership ad for uh, half a million dollars to come play for us. That That is not in the cards for, for anybody. That is that is uh, not what this legislation is, is designed to do. But in terms of the education, in terms of saying, here's our personalized brand, you know, we're the University of Nebraska, we're uh, the University of Kansas, here's our personalized brand package for, for you. Uh, for four or five star recruit, uh, in order to come to our school, here's what we're going to do for you. And and they've partnered with a lot of these external companies in terms of building their brand. You hear that a lot. And and those plans still need to be put in place. There are still some uh, tweaks around that NIL legislation in terms of what they can and cannot do that are still a little bit unclear right now. And so I think there would be, um, on, on account of the schools, wanting some clarity in terms of where those lines are uh, in in terms of the NIL, in in order to kind of focus uh, what they can talk to recruits about. There's a lot of regulatory uncertainty right now amid, particularly about name, image, or likeness, particularly about all different kinds of, of marketing and roster counting and, and all these other financial considerations. And undoubtedly, those financial considerations are shaping what the future recruiting calendar is going to look like. And in fact, how schools are going to be recruiting, because not only do you have regulatory uncertainty for the future, you also don't exactly know what your revenue is going to look like for the future. And, and with that level of uncertainty, makes planning a little bit difficult. I want to talk a little bit more 
about some of those financial changes. But before we do, I want to share a, a, a couple of, of, uh, of sponsors here, right? If we're going to talk about money over there, let's talk about money over here real quick. Uh, the first company I want to talk to you about real quick is the browser. When I sit down here and I write extra points, and when I'm trying to do my work here as a sports writer, it is it is so important for me to be able to find sources that will let me find unique and interesting stories in one place so I don't have to spend nine hours on the internet combing through Twitter and combing through every other individual little place to find information because that will give me brain worms. And I already have brain worms. I'm trying to make that case a little bit less terminal. So one thing that I really like about the browser is this is, a, this is an email newsletter that brings me five stories every day that are going to be completely different and unique from anything else I'm going to find as part of my regular media diet. This is not a, a newsletter that's going to recap the top business story here from the Wall Street Journal. This is going to surface magazine long reads. It's going to showcase cultural criticism. It's going to, you know, uh, foreign reporting, a, a bunch of information that's really good for my brain that helps me, um, you understand the news in a, in a different context, and it's something I'm not going to find from somewhere else. It's not going to be part of Morning Consult or my athletic newsletter or some of the other sports newsletters I get. It's completely different, and it helps me feel a lot more well-rounded. I make time out of my day to make sure that I get a chance to read this newsletter, and I think you might enjoy it as well. If you would like, um, as part of being a Going for Two listener, you get a special discount on the browser. You can use um, offer code Points 20 at checkout to get 20% off and become a more uh, well-read, uh, more well-rounded consumer of internet news. That is at www.thebrowser.com, offer code points 20. Speaking of newsletters, this is, of course, also a product of the Extra Points newsletter. And if you enjoy this podcast, chances are you're also going to love Extra Points, which publishes four days a week and digs into the same kind of stories that we talk about here. All of these off-the-field forces that shape college athletics. And that might be doing some, uh, some reporting and some digging into how NCAA administrative bylaw processes work. It might be talking about name, image, and likeness and state-level legislation. It might be talking about local political issues, uh, both on campus and beyond, uh, how athletic departments get their money, how they spend it. All of these things, which you don't really think about so much as fans absolutely shapes what we experience on the field on Saturdays and throughout the season. If you, uh, the, typically an extra point subscription is $7 a month to get you those four newsletters or 70 bucks for the year. But if you're not already a subscriber and you have the good taste to listen to this podcast, I've got good news for you. You can go to www.extrapointsmb.com, which is the URL for the newsletter, slash go for two. That's G-O-F-O-R two to get 20% off a subscription. And that's good for an entire year. Then you get access to all those newsletters, all of the archives, a special chat room on Discord where people are talking about college athletics nerdery all the time, all of that, 20% off. It's a great deal. www.extrapointsmb.com slash G-O-F-O-R-2. Go for two. So assuming that vaccination distribution is continuing along the same trajectory or hopefully better than it looks like right now. And things, we start to be inching towards some idea of what a new normal might be as we kind of lurch into this fall football season. Um, presumably, we're going to have a world where athletes are allowed to come back on campus again. And we're going to open up this dead period. And it's probably going to, we'll have information about that over the next couple of months. 
But I imagine we're not going to completely go back to everything that we did before as far as recruiting. Because, you know, you and I, we've both talked to coaches. We've both talked to admins. And not everybody really loved the system we had before anyway. It wasn't great for uh, coach balance, you know, work-life balance. It wasn't always great for the athletes themselves. And for some schools, it could be exorbitantly expensive. Do you think that we're going to be looking at a world where the recruiting calendar, maybe even the recruiting process looks pretty different post COVID, even when we don't have the fear of a global, uh, highly contagious pandemic. Yeah. I mean, it's already evolving, right? It, it, the changes that have happened during this pandemic, um, you know, just the ability in terms of the, uh, you know, there's been bylaw changes in terms of allowing additional staff members on your campus to have greater contact with recruits. I think that's here to stay, uh, to be honest. Um, and, and does that give bigger schools an advantage? Yes and no, because I, I think the the more information that these recruits can get from the school is 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 going to be better. And I think everybody kind of sees it that way. If they're going to be inter- interacting with a, a, an ops personnel guy or an academic advisor, you know, why not being be able to spend you know some additional hours on Zoom to kind of go over what kind of classes you might take or and, and that sort of stuff already goes on but you know the additional information that you can get um through these virtual visits and, and i think that that sort of stuff is still going to be here to stay and i think it's also kind of working in parallel with the changes that are already happening in terms of a lot of these bigger schools at the fbs level especially the power five level you know they're creating essentially separate departments just for recruiting you know it is a player personnel model you know just like the NFL. and i i think you know you're going to have a lot more uh say in terms of that recruiting and, and the separation between the on-field coaching staff and, and what's happening in those recruit, recruiting operations, it are it is already happening. Um, you know, you talk with kids nowadays that are you know kind of going through the process as, as high school recruits, and you know, they they might mention you know one of those recruiting staffers before they even get to their position coach. You know, just in terms of the amount of daily contact they might have is just a lot different. And and let's face it, by the time these kids, if if they're you know, starting to receive interest as juniors, the, their their position coach might change two or three times at that school that, that they're talking with uh, by the time they actually get into college. So the the changes are, are going on in the system. And I think we're, we're a lot of that is going to still be here to stay. I think a lot of schools are, are open to the fact that, yeah, we might, you know, might have one official visit, but, you know, we can take you on you know, the campus tour, we can, uh, if your uncle wants to come along, if your aunt, you know, wants to come along as well, they can join in and, um, you know, we can, we can, you know, see that, see the campus as it is, uh, in winter and in summer, and you might get that official visit, but there are other times of the year you might want to see what's going on in campus and you can kind of do that virtually, which I think is for, especially the bigger schools is, is definitely here to stay. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to imagine any kind of, of tweak, that isn't going to ultimately benefit wealthier schools more than, than poorer schools. Um, but I, I have to wonder if on some level there's a diminishing returns point about just throwing more and more money and more people at some of these operations, particularly as it pertains to bringing people on campus for in-person type visits, right? I mean, everybody has a director of operations. Even Olympic sports have those. And my understanding is that Dobos can help with some on-campus recruiting stuff now. And you can be a Pioneer League FCS team and you still have that person. They may not be being paid as well. You might only have one instead of seven, Um, but that person can potentially help. Universities have um, marketing departments for their school as a whole. You potentially could envision a world where, you know, staffers outside of the athletic department are helping with some of these virtual tours because schools give virtual tours to regular old students all the time, Uh, especially if you're a school that's located in a place that's hard for out-of-state people to get to all the time. If you're 
Northwestern, and you know that's one thing. If you're Wyoming and you're going to have to recruit kids out of state no matter what, or if you're Nebraska, well, you're going to make the technological and and uh, infrastructure investments to make that happen. Um, I want to on that note though. I want to talk, I guess, a little bit more about who's actually benefiting from this exact system right now, right? We've, we've had a year where, where people aren't being able to come to campus. And you look at the, the football recruiting rankings and, and even some of the basketball ones, and lo and behold, this is going to shock you. Apparently, Alabama did a really good job recruiting. And Ohio State did well, and Georgia did well, and these very big established brands were somehow able to continue to attract uh, talented young men and women to come to campus without showing up. Um, I'm wondering, do you think that that's just, look, that's just the law of the universe, that the same six schools are, are going to be stronger no matter what? Do you think that if you are somebody – some schools don't necessarily need to, to have people come to campus to sell them? Are there Are there a particular kind of school that is – maybe advantaged or disadvantaged in this current system. I, I, I would I would imagine anybody that, that really feels like you have to be there to get the experience is, is going to be behind the eight ball a little bit. Well, I think that those schools located in, in really talent-rich parts of the country uh, have done a little bit oversized uh, in terms of the the how well they've done in terms of those recruiting rankings. You know, it, you look at USC, their recru- recruiting picked up significantly in, in the state of California. And I think that was somewhat pandemic related. Some of it was uh, the changes that Clay Hilton has, has made. But, you know, UCLA got a, a, an uptick as well. Um, you know, just really the, the ability to have those local ties and, and know that, um, you know, for a lot of these these parents, you know, maybe maybe this has kind of changed their priority in terms of letting uh, their son or daughter go go a little bit further away than they were kind of thinking pre-pandemic for college. So I, I think that has kind of readjusted everybody in terms of uh, where they're getting their recruits and, and how well they're doing locally. But uh, you know, to that end, I, I think it's also changed the perception that these recruits and, and these these parents have had in terms of doing that virtual stuff that we were just talking about. I mean, this this upcoming generation, having been going to school on Zoom and and, and Skyping back and forth with their friends and, and FaceTiming with their relatives so often they're going to be so used to oh yeah sure I'll, I'll jump on with the on a zoom with your coach and and I will do that virtual tour and, and I think that does kind of open things up a little bit once we are able to travel saying you know maybe, maybe I will check out you know Penn State when when I probably wasn't going to consider going all the way to, to Happy Valley maybe I, I can you know get a bit of a sense before I take that next step in, in booking that official visit because there's still limits on those amounts that you can take so um, I, I think recruits will be a little bit better prepared uh, and and maybe explore and maybe this flips back the other way to where whether there was an advantage for those uh, that had that local uh, talent base, maybe it flips the other way and you throw an NIL on top of that. You know, there's been a lot of talk, a school like Nebraska, not a, not a ton of talent in, in that kind of 200 mile radius that you need to kind of really focus on, but it, it is a great fan base. You are really uh, the, the king of that state. If you're, you're a part of that Cornhuskers program and maybe with NIL, you can have a, an opportunity to say, look, I, I can not only be the, the big man on campus, I can be the big man on in the state if I go there and I have success. And so I think that could also affect some of those programs down the line when you add in not only what's going on now with the pandemic, but also there's real changes coming up. That point on name image you like this is something I've heard from almost every economist and almost every business school professor that I've talked to. That there, there seems to be this, this assumption, I don't know if it's from athletic directors or where this is coming from, that uh, market size 
is the most important factor for your potential endorsements. And I don't think that lines up at all. It doesn't line up because for one, and I've written about this a fair amount, probably the single biggest source of where most of these athletes are going to make money is through their social media accounts. And buddy, you can have a Twitter account anywhere and and sell ads. I mean, I don't sell ads to anybody based in Chicago. Um, You know, I've been stuck in my basement for this entire year and, and we've been able to find sponsors that way. And it's the same way for anybody on Twitter or Instagram. But then if we look at what's local, I think anybody that's spent time in an urban area with with the possible exception of USC and Los Angeles, that um, most of these big cities that have colleges in them, those schools are capturing a tiny percentage of the market share, right? Like I, Cincinnati is, is, is the Bearcats are are great and they've become a much more stronger program and they're capturing more of the hearts and minds of Cincinnatians uh, that they're, that's still not the number one game in town. Um, the Houston Cougars are a great athletic program that is not even like the sixth most popular thing in Houston. Um, and if you are in Nebraska or if you're in Starkville or if you're in, you know, West Lafayette, maybe, I don't know, some of these, these smaller places, you could be a big fish in a small pond and still do well for yourself financially. So like the, depending on uh, what the actual guardrails and rules of that marketplace are going to look like, sure. I could definitely see some schools that uh, are not particularly advantaged now seeing an advantage. Nebraska is an interesting one because shoot, has anybody been like more disadvantaged over the the way that college football has changed over the last 20 years than Nebraska between uh, you know, the, Television revenue becoming decentralized and Prop 48 kids being, you know, knocked down and roster rules consolidating and, on, and other schools figuring out how to lift weights. All of these other changes seem to have conspired to hurt them specifically. Maybe they're going to be in a position to take advantage uh, post NIL. Let me let me ask you something else because you, you touched on something else that I think is important. Like we sat here, we've talked about schools that may benefit or schools that may not benefit from this current system, but it seems probable. The one group that has not really benefited from not being able to come to campus for the last year has been high schoolers. Um, You probably went to some campuses when you were picking out your college. I I know I did. I think many of them would like to go. Do you think there's some changes that could potentially happen or that you might recommend that might shift some more of the power back to them or help make up for the fact that they missed out all this time, like maybe allowing them to take more official visits or changing something else with the calendar. So they're not so uniquely damaged by this pandemic. Yeah. I think those liberalizing some of those rules is definitely going to be part of this kind of transition plan that that we'll hear about over the next couple, couple of months. I mean, I would imagine the, just the official visit, you know, and some of those limits surrounding the, the amount of official visits you can even take, um, whether it's the, the school side or the, the player side, I would imagine those are going to be relaxed a little bit. And I, I have a hard time seeing that can maybe being compressed back and, and, and zipped up. But uh, to be honest, I, I think there's, uh, you know, a whole host of changes, you know, kind of coming down the pipeline. And, and it's not just about recruiting. I mean, even the the way that sport and, and the NCAA is itself, um, you know, is, is going to change, I think, over the le- next couple of years, because uh, we have external financial pressures and, and all these schools trying to get back uh, in, into the black in that part. So I think it's it, it's just a massive amount of changes, I think, that, that are going to come to the system. And, and and I would imagine that at the end of the day, uh, over the next couple of months and next couple of years, uh, as we kind of get back into a regular cadence with recruiting, that uh, we'll start to see uh, some of those those issues, whether it's, you know, we, I mean, we've really even only scratched the surface on things like spring visits, spring official visits. That's only something that, that's been new uh, these last couple of years. And I would imagine that's going to uh, keep expanding. And, and I think that's good for some, some student athletes and, and probably not as great for 
for, for others? And there's probably not really legislative solutions that are going to be perfect for everybody. I would think that what you ideally want to do is to create a system that gives both institutions and especially athletes the most access to choice as possible. If, if there's one thing, takeaway I think I've, I've kind of picked up from this whole debate over the past couple of months is that there's not really an entity right now whose sole purpose is to advocate for high school athletes throughout this process. When you look at the NCAA legislative structure right now, which is mostly athletic directors and some university presidents making these decisions, their responsibility is to advocate and to look after their current students and their institution. And if that means that saving money in the in the in the short term, even if that means disadvantaging a bunch of 16 and 17 year olds, um, that that's something that they're going to push towards doing. And if, if, if the 16, 17 year olds are disadvantaged equally and no one's getting a competitive advantage uh, by you know, liberalizing or recruiting a little bit, then the schools save money and everybody wins on that front and all the high school kids lose. We, we I've written a lot. I think you and I have talked about how college athletes are not as a part of this legislative process or about the uh, do not have as much say in the actual governing of the sports as probably they should. Or, But high school athletes are even more disadvantaged. And it, it, whether you think that these rule changes are good or bad or you're indifferent, um, there really isn't anybody right now advocating for a 16-year-old running back other than a recruiting reporter, which – it could be problematic in a different way, I suppose. There's there, there's no one that has any say in any of this that has their best interests in mind. Would you say that's fair? Uh, I would agree completely. And, and at least it is getting better. I, I think the, the leaders at the NCAA have at least noticed that blind spot and have worked somewhat within the system to kind of change that. And I think the the uh, SAC committees that are involved, the, the student athlete advisory committees that are uh, you know really present at a number of different levels ha- have had a greater say and even more voting power uh, over the last couple of years. I think they even have a seat on on the Division One Council now and the Division One board. So uh, too. So I, I think there's um, you know really an increase in the amount of uh, discussion between the the students that are actually you know actively involved in, in creating this legislation and and being part of these committees and, and I think that's a really a sea change from where it was five ten years ago and I think that's going to continue now um, you know this this issue of um, you know, kind of that incoming crop of talent not really being represented at the table I mean that that is present at at really every every sport and at, at every level yeah. I mean, you look at the the NBA and the NFL whenever they go through labor negotiations who ends up losing well it, it's that incoming group because that union has to take care of the members that are actually voting on that proposal that are in the league right now. And so uh, this is a, a tale as old as time. And I think that that kind of conflict, if, if you will, um, is always going to be there. But because everybody can speak out uh, much easier and, and go directly to kind of the public at large, I think the the oversight of that and some of the issues related to that uh, are, are going to be less um, less broad based and, and maybe more more focused on individual cases than necessarily kind of the bigger group issues that we kind of have seen in the last couple of years. The union example is exactly the one I was thinking of in my head. You're, you're right. I mean, like that's true, honestly, even outside of athletics, uh, but especially so. The, the NBA would be the example I think of off the top of my head, right? There's no reason other than the goodness of your heart to advocate for the interests of people that are not yet in that union. And then you come up in there and you pay dues and maybe the next CBA will look after you in four or five years. That's kind of how the situation is with college athletics now. Now, I mean, it's worse because <laughs> – the current college athletes don't get enough of a say either. Like, so it's it's 
getting screwed, getting screwed in a different way. Um, we uh, there may be some reason to be optimistic that that some of that could change a little bit more in, in in the future. There's certainly a generational shift, I think, between college administrators who would like to bring in more athletes involved in this process. I mean, I think even Jim Phillips talked about that before he took the ACC commissioner job, and you know that may be a part of continuing governance conversations over the future. If, if nothing else, just next year going to be some big changes. It's going to be some big changes in recruiting calendars and how people actually do the recruiting. There's going to be big changes about how we define what an amateur is and what name image like this, the, that marketplace is going to look like and how that's going to play into recruiting. We're going to have big changes potentially in NCAA legislative systems themselves. Um, to, to, we could, you know, normally the off season is a little bit boring. And as a writer, sometimes I appreciated that, knowing that I can I can kind of take my foot off the gas pedal a little bit in May. Um, I don't know if it's that's what we're going to happen. It's going to happen this year. I mean, I'm not saying it's going to be so bonkers as like the Big Twelve is going to try to expand uh, this summer, but we we are definitely around during not so boring times. Absolutely. I mean, just the amount of things that are kind of coming down the pipe that that you can see uh, coming is is crazy. I mean, I, I looked uh, today and there's 54 different proposals that were tabled. Eventually, that that sort of stuff uh, in, in the NCAA backlog is going to have to be addressed. You know, there are changes to the NCAA soccer season, the the golf recruiting calendar, and that's not even counting some of the things that we uh, have discussed quite often here about NIL and and one time transfer and some of those bigger uh, agenda items. I mean, you look at a lot of these subcommittees and and presidential forums. They're, they're studying significant changes uh, to the NCA, and that's uh, all eventually going to you know, result in, in uh, massive uh, legislative changes. And so we'll, we'll see that down the road. It might take some time, but uh, you're right. The, the back end of this pandemic, as we kind of return somewhat to normal and, and things have changed in society uh, overall, but uh, really at the NCA level, it, it's going to keep changing. And it, I think maybe even accelerate that, that amount of change over the next couple months, next couple of years years as well. We're going to unquestionably talk a lot about those potential changes, not only on future episodes here going for two, but but on extra points. Um, we had a newsletter earlier this week about the complicated internal politics about changing mascot names or potential university names, which is a, almost as big of a change as you can get on the local level. Uh, we're going to have some stories coming up over, over the next uh, couple of days here about state another state bill happening here in California, about the weird merger here with the ASUN and the WAC uh, in at least in, in the short term, uh, and a few other potential changes, uh, both uh, you know, uh, locally and nationally in college athletics. And you can continue to find those stories at www.extrapointsmb.com. Brian, do you have anything else here for the people before we let them go? No, I would just say, you know, remind everybody, of course, you mentioned uh, the extra points. If you go to that extrapointsmb.com slash go for two, you get the 20% off. We also got a 20% off at, at the browser if you use points 20. So uh, be sure to sign up for, for both of those because they are uh, fantastic resources, not just in terms of college athletics, but uh, kind of the whole sports ecosystem and, and beyond uh, as well. But uh, other than that, if, if you want to follow me on Twitter at Brian D. Fisher, uh, you can, of course, do that. And uh, please rate, review, subscribe. Uh, if you have, uh, get your podcast through iTunes, Spotify, whatever it is, doesn't, doesn't matter. But uh, we, we're seeing those uh we're, we're at uh, four and a half stars we, we want to get it up to, to five stars uh for the podcast and, and we do appreciate uh, every review uh whether it's positive or negative just uh, let us know how we're doing and we can uh, adjust as needed yeah I'm, I'm looking here at the reviews right now and we got a whole bunch of five stars it's like we got a three or two but like we said right this is now bamboo recruiting class and they got to take a kicker 
they don't make five-star kickers yet. We appreciate all of the feedback. When you leave those five-star reviews, that helps other people find this podcast. The more people find this podcast, the easier it is then for us to continue to make more podcasts and find new sponsors and bring on new guests and bring people to the newsletter. And all of this means that I don't then have to go work behind the deli counter and can continue uh, producing independent sports writing. We appreciate all of your support. We appreciate your subscriptions. We appreciate your comments. And we'll be back ready to talk with you next week to share one of our new exciting guests on the next episode of Going For Two. In the meantime, I'm Matt. That's Brian. Thanks for listening. We'll catch up with you next time.